One of the things I love about this community is uh, the amount of godly, wise people in it. Um, that on any given Sunday, there are seated in, uh, in the rows beside you people who um, have a relationship with Jesus, know Jesus, follow Jesus, um, people that you can learn from. Um, I know that in a, in a fallen world, it's, it's pretty easy to want to be the smartest person in any room. And whether that's the conference room or whether that's the classroom or whether that's the living room surrounded by your house, church, or whether that's a room like this, the desire to be the smartest person in the room is there. And I find that it's humbling when you're not, but it's also encouraging. Um, if I'm the smartest person in the room, then one, feel sorry for the room. But two, um, there's this tremendous pressure to be something, right? To prove something, um, to, to say something significant or smart sounding. Um, I bring this up because, first of all, if you're uh, visiting with us, if you're checking new community out, um, and you're looking for a church where the guy on the platform is the smartest guy in the room, then you can go ahead and check us off your list. Uh, this isn't that. Um, we have a preaching team, a new community. Uh, that, that I take the platform most weeks, yes, but there are uh, other individuals who, um, who, who help me preach, and, um, and, and, and that's important. It's beneficial not only for me, but I think it's beneficial for you. If you uh, have a steady diet of hearing from just one person, um, and just one person's sermons, and just one person's wrestling with scripture, then it sort of keeps you in sort of a narrow perspective of things. However, when you, when you have that diet spread out over other people, you listen to other people, then, then your perspective grows. So it's healthy. Um, the other thing about uh, having a preaching team is that um, it, it prevents sort of an unhealth um, in, in terms of uh, unhealth of uh, adapting to a certain character, right? So sometimes we put a person on a pedestal and we can have an unhealthy connection to that person. And if something should happen, say, say God should transfer them to a, a way or worse, that, that that person should fail out of ministry, and all of a sudden there's this vacuum of leadership there and there's this, this, this hole. And, and the, there, is, uh, there are churches, I, I think, that sometimes we, we put somebody in a position, and we, we have this unhealthy sort of um, dependency upon them. And so having a preaching team helps that. Lastly, I, I think that uh, healthy things multiply. I think healthy things multiply. And so for us to be a healthy church, for us to have you know, a, a group of people, a, a, a preaching resource in, in these people so that we can multiply gatherings, I, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Um, this last week, I, I got to have coffee with somebody in, in, our, in our congregation, and um, I, I won't tell you his name. He's a very wise but humble uh, individual, and we were talking about the, the Sermon on the Mountain, this series, and he brought some things to, to light that I hadn't thought of before. He pointed out some things that were really, really helpful and beautiful about this, this sermon, and, and what he pointed out to me was this, that, that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what is it, he's essentially doing is he's recovering something that's been lost in us, He's redeeming something that's been, been broken. He's po pointing us back and calling us back to something from our past. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, what we discover there is that there's four relational relationships that we, we see, right? The, the first relationship that, that God creates is the relationship between God and, and man. The, the, there's God, and he, and he creates Adam, and um, Adam is, is created with intrinsic value, that means that in and of himself, he's valuable because God made him. But he also has instrumental value, which means he has purpose. 
right? That, that he's meant to reflect through the rest of creation what God is like. And so this being with value has this relationship with God. And you could say that the currency of the relationship, that what's exchanged back and forth between God and Adam is love. That's the, the relational currency that exists between the two. And so God provides this place, right? This garden, this, this space where all Adam's needs are met and, and, and there's, no, uh, uh, there, there, there's no toilsome sort of work. There's work, there's purpose, but it's not work that exhausts you. And so this is, there's, there's this place where Adam can be with God and God can be with Adam in this, this relationship of love. And then we see the, the human dimension, the human relationship created, Adam and Eve, right? Given to one another, the two become one flesh, a beautiful picture of love and unity. So this relationship exists. There's, there's a third relationship that exists and, and, and it's sort of uh, underneath the surface there. We don't see it explicitly in Genesis 1 and 2, but Jesus reflects back on it when he says that we should to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. When Paul talks about husbands should love your, your wives as you love your own bodies, there's this understanding that we are to love ourselves. There's another d- relational dimension there. But there's a fourth relational uh, relationship that, that, that God makes and that's the relationship of humanity to creation. We're meant to subdue creation, not destroy it. We're meant to tend to it, to, to, to help it thrive, to, to, to help it become like a garden that we're supposed to care for. it. And, and in, in that too, there is a type of, of, of love that we have towards creation. Well, this didn't last very long because in Genesis 3, what happens? The serpent shows up and he convinces Eve to believe a lie. You can be like God. And Eve believes the lie, she takes the fruit, she eats it, hands some to, to, to Adam, and in that moment, he has a choice to make, follow God or follow my wife. He follows his wife. And, and what happens in that moment is there's an exchange. That currency between relationships, this currency of love, is exchanged for power. It's exchanged for control. So that humanity decides that it wants to usurp God's power that it wants to rise to the top, that it wants to, to, to sit on the throne, that, that all other human relationships or all the relationships that it has are now objective relationships. They're, they're instrumental relationships and in that beings are there to serve their purpose. So in our relationship with God, God now exists to, to function in the ways we want him to function. He, he, he's there to serve us. Have you ever heard somebody say, I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank? I could never believe in a God who allows evil. I could never believe in a God who allows good people to suffer. What essentially are they saying in that? They're saying this, I'm God and I determine what God should be like. In other words, God is now instrumental to me and he's an object for me to use and if he doesn't act the way I want him to, then he could be discarded. God becomes an object. In our human relationships with one another, we turn each other into objects. We use one another. We self-promote. We, we climb the ladder at other people's expenses. Even marriages oftentimes begin with a person's need to have somebody else fulfill them. We use one another. Objects. Love. Replaced by power. When it comes to ourselves, our own bodies get treated like objects where people say, it's my body, it's my choice, it's my body, I can do with it what, it, what I want with it, I can, do, I, I can use it however I, I please, I can use it to fulfill my, my passions, my, 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 my desire for comfort, my desire for pleasure. Love is replaced by control. 
And same thing with creation. We use creation. We don't care for it. We don't tend to it. We're not worried about its resources lasting. We just gobble it all up. Love is replaced by power. Now, love causes fruitfulness. Love causes flourishing. It causes thriving. Love produces life. Power and control produce death. Spiritual, physical death. And that's the result. And that's where we are until just the right moment in time where the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. And he calls some people to follow him and one day he begins to climb a mountain, he turns around and he begins to speak. The Sermon on the Mount, what we find in Matthew chapters five through seven, is Jesus giving us this vision of what life is supposed to be like when power is turned in and love is embraced again. It's calling us back to the way things are supposed to be. I'm gonna pause and pray and we'll get in to the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon and thank you for what it reveals about us. As we study it, you're holding up a mirror to what we're actually like and you're calling us to change in light of it. You're calling us to see what we are apart from you and how desperately we need you. So Father, I pray in the moments that follow people hear from you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you're glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter five. We saw in the very first verse of this chapter, Jesus saying, or he's seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And it starts with this. Discipleship starts with this. That the disciple is somebody who is with Jesus. Somebody who's with Jesus. So Jesus climbs this mountain, he turns around, he's probably on a slightly higher elevation than everybody else. His disciples gather around at his feet. They are with Jesus. They've left behind their lives in order to be with Jesus. Now crowds follow too, and we hope that people from the crowds hear the words of Jesus and they become disciples too, but most of them won't. Most of them will remain bystanders. Most of them will remain onlookers. They will people who never really want to be with Jesus, never want to be really become like Jesus or do what Jesus did. But his disciples are there. The first verse is about being with Jesus. The Beatitudes, which we're studying in this portion of this section, this is about becoming like Jesus. We're looking at the attributes of what he is like and therefore a follow of his is meant to be like. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus does or what he points us to do and the action that follows. But here we are, disciples, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening in order to become like him. Chapter five, verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here are eight statements. They all begin with the word blessed. We talked about this in the, the previous two weeks. That's the Greek word makairos. It means flourishing, thriving, fruitful. So fruitful are, and then the attribute is listed, and then the reward is listed at the end. 
So uh, we talked about this last week, but just to remind you, there's some, some elements here to keep in mind as we work through the Beatitudes. The first is this, that these statements combined describe every disciple. All of these statements are meant to be true of every disciple. So if you have the idea, well, I'm really good at mercy, but as far as that meekness thing, probably not me. I'll leave that up to somebody else. No, no, it's for all of us, okay? So all of these attributes are meant to define what a disciple is, or at least should be. Uh, Secondly, the reward of each of these characteristics are to be had by all disciples. So just as we're to have all of these attributes, so all of the reward that comes from these attributes are also ours. Third, the reward is appropriate to each characteristic or attribute. So when we look at this today, uh, blessed are those who mourn, the right reward for mourning is comfort. Uh, Next, um, these Beatitudes, they end where they begin with the kingdom of heaven. There's this circular, this loop that Jesus is closing by starting and ending with the kingdom of heaven, one, assuring us that it's ours, but two, reminding us that we're part of a different kingdom. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you belong to a different kingdom. He's reminding us of that. Next, these characteristics are spiritual in nature, not physical. We talked about poverty of spirit last week, that this is not material in nature. This is a person who recognizes that before God, they're empty. They got nothing to bring and nothing to offer, and they live their lives completely dependent upon God. Uh, Lastly, these traits build on one another. They're meant to be seen like steps, and you can't skip any of them. They build one right on top of the other. So the first attribute of Jesus that is to be found in those who are with him and want to be like him and do what he did is poverty of spirit. We looked at this last week. The starting point for any disciple, it must be emptiness. It must be where we say to God, there's nothing that I have to offer you. There's there's nothing that I'm holding on to that I can leverage against you in order to get what I want from you. There's no positive, no good work, no righteousness None of that that I can point to and say, God, you owe me. Likewise, from a negative standpoint, there's also nothing we could say and say, because of my trauma, because of my past experiences, because of what has happened to me, you owe me. You need to make up. Empty means empty. It means we recognize that we've exchanged love for power. And it's broken us. And we need And so in our need, we relinquish power. Empty. That's why D.A. Carson says this is the deepest form of repentance. Repentance is where it starts. Repentance is where we address our sin. Repentance is where we say this is real and I've done this and this is what I am and I need. Repentance. Poverty of spirit precedes what? Look at verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the one we're looking at this morning. As John Stott said, the Sermon on the Mount is the best-known teaching of Jesus, but arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. That's definitely true of this beatitude. Least understood. Um, it's, it's, It's one people know. People who've never set church foot in a church gathering before know or have heard this, and the place they probably heard it is at a funeral. A place where somebody like me gets up in front of people who are mourning the loss of a loved one and they point to this verse and say, you're gonna be comforted if you mourn. The problem is, this verse isn't about that. Yes, death is a result of sin, 
but it is sin specifically that Jesus has in view here. This is not bereaving the loss of a loved one. This is not mourning the loss of some, someone that you cared about in death. All right, this is not a funeral passage. This passage is about mourning our sin. Uh, David Brooks, uh, in, in his book, Road to Character, he points to a need for a renewed understanding in our culture about what sin is. He writes, today the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. It's used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts. Most people in daily conversation don't talk much about individual sin. If they talk about human evil at all, that evil is most often located in the structures of society, in inequality, oppression, racism, and so on, not in the human breast. That's simply too much darkness for the modern mentality. He says that uh, because of this, we've, we've abandoned the concept of sin. He points to three reasons. First, we've left behind the depraved view of human nature. You ask most people, are people good or evil? And, and the common answer in our culture is people are good. People are good. Most people are good. There's a couple of bad eggs thrown in there, but most people are good. Secondly, the word sin has been used to declare war on pleasure, even healthy pleasure. Any of you come from a tradition or a background where dancing or playing cards was called sin. Thirdly, there are too many legalists out there. The word sin has been abused by the self-righteous, by the dry-hearted scolds who seemed alarmed, as H.L. Mencken put it, by the possibility that someone somewhere might be enjoying himself, who always seems ready to wrap somebody's knuckles with a ruler on the supposition that that person is doing wrong. Individuals who are always looking to find sin where it's not. Brooks writes that sin is a necessary piece of our mental furniture, he calls it, that no matter how hard we try to replace sin with non-moral words like weakness or uh, error or mistake, we cannot deny the most essential parts of our life that matters is individual responsibility and moral choice. He says that the concept of sin is necessary because it's radically true. Then he says this, to say you're a sinner is not to say that you have some black depraved stain on your heart. It is to say that like the rest of us, you have some perversity of nature. Now that's what Brooks says. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that you are dead in the trespasses of your sins. The Bible says that because of your sins, you are an enemy of God. Now, I point out what Brooks says because I think it's incredibly interesting when you consider this. This is not a Christian book written to a Christian audience. Brooks is a New York Times columnist. He's a political pundit. And he's writing this book to the kind of people who reads his articles. And that should tell us a couple things. One thing that it tells us is that not everybody in our culture dismisses sin. That there are some people who recognize the problem is not just out there, it's in here. And there is the opportunity for the church to speak in. The second thing I'll point out, though, is that Brooks is more direct, more confrontational, more explicit about sin than most churches are. The fact that he will define it and point to it as a New York Times columnist, when people in churches refuse to, says something. If our culture has lost 
a sense of what sin is, and if our culture has lost the identity as that of sinners, then the blame for that should be laid at the foot of the church because we haven't preached it. We haven't proclaimed it. If, if we dismiss the word sin and start using these, 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 these unmoral words like mistake, error, or weakness to replace it, if instead of, of pointing to sin not here or in one another, instead we point to, 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 to nameless structures, societal structures like you know, racism or oppression, then we don't own it. The failure of the church is we, we, we haven't. We haven't confronted sin. And I think to a certain degree, we're ashamed by the New York Times columnist who's willing to do it where we're not. To be one of poor in spirit is for us to say, I'm a sinner. And, and there's nothing that I can do to avoid the just wrath of God. It is to confront sin, it's to address sin, it's to recognize where sin lies in us. The poverty of spirit that precedes mourning, and, and what is it that we're mourning? We're mourning sin. We're mourning the fact that we exchanged love for power over God. We're mourning the fact that we exchanged love for power over one another. That we exchanged love for power over ourselves and our creation. And the results of what we've done is devastating. And we're mourning the consequences. We must address sin, confront sin, acknowledge sin, not just out there, but right here in us. Then we mourn it. We can't move on in Christ-like character without mourning. You cannot move on to, more, to, to meekness until we mourn. You, we cannot move on to hungering and thirsting for what is right until we mourn sin. We cannot become peacemakers until we mourn sin. We cannot understand purity in heart till we mourn sin. We can't skip over this. It's painful, it's hard, but we can't jump this step. Mourning sin. I think uh, we could take a lesson from bereavement type of mourning. Experts say that there are certain things or certain consequences that happen to you if you don't mourn the loss of a loved one. If you don't mourn the loss of, an, of the other one, you don't acknowledge that loss. You pretend like it didn't happen. You, don't, you sort of gloss over it. You, you, you don't address it or talk about it. Right? It, it's, to, it's to mask. In the same way, if we don't mourn our sin, then we don't face the reality of who we are and what we are. And ultimately, we, we lose integrity in our relationships. Um, if we don't mourn the loss of a loved one, we tend to get overactive, overwork, and distract ourselves so that we don't have to deal. In the same way, if we don't mourn our sin, we live lives of avoidance. Ultimately, we avoid our own hearts. Third, we don't mourn our sin. We tend to isolate and detach from other people. That's the same of those who don't mourn a, a loss agree the loss of somebody, they, they isolate and they detach. I, I've seen it in people when, when they talk about their life and they talk about their failure, right? They don't call it sin. And when people don't call it sin, if they call it mistake or they call it an error, or they call it a weakness, they don't call it sin. They use some sort of unmoral or amoral word to describe what it is that they've done. 
they, they generally, I think unconsciously, steer clear of deep relationships with people. Because to have deep relationships with people will unearth what they've done and, and bring shame to it. So they steer clear of intimate relationships so, so that, that shame doesn't, doesn't surface and other people see it and they don't have to see it themselves. Fourth, if people don't grieve loss, they tend to self-indulge. I don't want to feel bad. Somebody who's lost a loved one, they don't want to feel bad, so they want to feel good, and in order to feel good, they're going to eat and drink and, and, and have sex and uh, do a lot of shopping. Turn to anything and everything I can so I don't feel bad and feel good. We do the same thing. If, we're, if we don't mourn our sin, we just simply turn to masking sort of behavior. Cover it up like it didn't happen. Next, or last, people who don't mourn the loss of a loved one, by sort of suppressing all that emotion, they usually have like short fuses. And sometimes little things will set them off. Little events of life will cause an explosion. I think for, for us, if we don't mourn sin, we tend to overreact to other people's sin. We tend to put other people's sin underneath the microscope where ours is just left hidden in the closet. There's a time to confront and, and mourn other people's sin, but not before we've mourned our own. So the failure of the church is not to address, address sin appropriately, not to confront it, but also not to mourn it, not to confess it, not to be contrite over it. But there's uh, another failure. David Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, the idea that has gained currency in the church, that if we as Christians are to attract those who are not Christian, we must deliberately affect an appearance of brightness and joviality. Thus, many try to assume a kind of joy and happiness which is not something that arises from within, but is something which is put on. This is sort of bait-and-switch church. This is, we're gonna sing really happy songs and we're gonna preach really happy messages and everything is gonna be sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. Everything's gonna be happy and, and by being happy, people wanna be happy too and, and that will attract people. The, the problem is, is though as people come in and as they get to know us, what they discover is the, the, the switch that we are people with superficial relationships, untrue to ourselves, living lives of avoidance and isolation, overindulging our appetites to numb our hearts and ultimately trying to take the slivers out of their eyes before removing the planks from our own. Jones sums it up. I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin, a defective doctrine of sin. Coupled with that is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy. Thus, the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. But he concludes with this. A real sense of sin must come before there can be true joy of salvation. You cannot experience the joy of salvation without understanding the depths of sin. And therein is the reward. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's the reward, comfort. Jesus, in, in speaking to his disciples in John 15, is preparing them for his absence when he returns to heaven, for his ascension. 
preparing them for, for what they, they will receive. And he says to them, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Two things to point out. One, disciples are people who are with Jesus. We, we need to just drive this home that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus without being with Jesus. If you think being a disciple means being with people who have been with Jesus and you get his, sort of his presence secondhand through other people, you don't understand what it means to be a disciple. Don't count on my being with Jesus for you or listening to a podcast from somebody who's been with Jesus or, or whatever that is. It's about you being with Jesus. The second thing to note here, this word parakletos, the word that we translate as helper in the SV, this is a, a proper noun. This is the name of the Holy Spirit and you can also translate it as comforter. And here's what Jesus is saying. The comfort for you is not gonna be external, it's gonna be internal. The comforter is coming. The spirit of, of God is going to take up residence inside of you. Your comfort is not external. It's also not future. When you have the Holy Spirit, it's now. The comforter in us. But what does the comforter do to comfort us? He testifies to Jesus. He points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. See, mourning comes but when, when we properly mourn, then we, we can see the joy of our salvation. Without the sorrow over sin, there can be no joy over salvation. I've noticed in, in, in certain people's testimonies, they talk about their life and they talk about what's happened over the course of their life and how things have changed during the course of their life and, and how sometimes the only sin that they mention are, are people's sins against them. They never talk about their own sin. Something was bad, something was wrong in life, something wasn't going right, but it's never called sin. But the result is, is as, they, as they continue their story, when it gets to the end and the point of change or the, the, the point where, where things have gotten better or whatever, they also don't point to a savior. The, the people in their testimonies, if they're not addressing sin, they usually never get to a savior. Without the sorrow over sin, there can be no joy over salvation. It seems paradoxical that blessed in the sense this thriving, flourishing, fruitful kind of life comes out of mourning. But it's the natural response. The one who mourns over sin is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season and its life does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We've pointed out over the last couple of weeks and we're gonna continue to point out throughout this series that the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural vision of what life is supposed to be like. Um, John Stott, uh, in uh, restating this uh, beatitude, he's, he says, another way of saying blessed are those who mourn is uh, happy are those who are unhappy. Um, if our culture were to, 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 to repitch this, it would probably be happy are the happy or ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. See, in our culture, we, we're not just not addressing sin and confronting sin. We're also not mourning over sin. Instead, we're celebrating sin. You think about it. What happens if, you've, if the currency of our relationships were supposed to be love? That was the virtue. And we flip that up on its head. And now power is the virtue. Then what do you celebrate? 
that you get to point to God and you get to tell God who and what you are and how you get to live. And you get to tell God who he is and what he can be for you and do for you. And that is celebrated in our culture. For us to use other human beings to climb the ladder and gain success, to use one another for our pleasures, our purposes, that is celebrated. Power, celebrated. That we would use our own bodies and say, this is my body and I get to do with it whatever I want. It is my object to use however I want. Control, that's celebrated. How we treat creation, power, control, celebrated. See, if we don't mourn sin, we can never heal from sin. Imagine you go to a doctor and your arm hurts. And your doctor takes one look at your arm and she says, I have a pretty good idea, I know what's wrong, but let's do some x-rays. And the x-rays come back, she says, yep, sure enough, you know, your arm's not supposed to bend in that direction. It's broken, we need to, uh, uh, we need to set the bone and, and we need to, to, to stabilize it. We need to make it so it can't move, so it can heal, immobilize it. But you say, you know what? It's cool like this. It's different. It may hurt really bad, and it may not function the way I want, but I don't know. I like it. That seems silly, right? The fact that we choose power over love. That's silly. We can't mourn from sin if we're celebrating it. John Mark Comer says, the more we hide, the less we heal. Mourning over sin is difficult, and it's painful, and it's absolutely necessary. How do we do it? I think we, we start by looking at God, because he does it first. Uh, Genesis 6, it says, the, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It says something similar in 1 Samuel 15, God regretted that he'd made Saul king. Now that word regret there, that's another one of those words that loses a lot of nuance as it's translated into English. In Hebrew, it's naham. And it's actually not a word. It's a sound. Have you ever been so distressed? So like rock bottom emotionally spent that you don't have words to utter what's going on? And all you can do is just the word Naham is a sigh that the God of the universe looks at us in our sin and is so grieved to his heart that a word can't express it. He just sighs. So here's the thing, you can't grieve what you don't care about. If you were walking down the street and you saw somebody ODing, and an ambulance was called and they lose their life, but you didn't know them, it might be traumatic for you that you saw that. But if it's your brother, or if it's your sister, or if it's your son or daughter who ODs and you feel the loss, they, 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 they don't recover, they, they die from their addiction that grieves you to your heart in a way 
And nobody else will understand if they haven't been there. You don't grieve what you don't care about. The fact that God looks at us and he grieves our sins says one thing loud and clear, that the God of the universe loves you. He's so grieved. Like father, like son. Jesus in John 11 finds out that his friend Lazarus is dead. And he shows up on the scene and he encounters Lazarus' sister and he sees her She's mourning, she's weeping. It says this, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus was called a man of sorrows before he was even born. He wept a lot. He looked out at Jerusalem and wept for the city. The night before he goes to the cross, he he weeps over this cup of suffering that he's gonna have to drink, but it was our sins in that cup. But in this moment, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit. That, that, that word there in the Greek, I can't even pronounce it, so I'm not even gonna try. But it's the same thing. It's not a word so much as it is a sound. It's a groan. Groan. An expression too deep for words uttered by Jesus. Not because Lazarus was dead. He, he, he brought him back to life in a minute. It wasn't because of death. It was because of sin which causes death. He grieves. You can't grieve. Well, you don't love. That God should love us that much that he would send his son to go to the cross, to take our place. The fact that a righteous man died in our place, doesn't that add to the grief in the morning? How do we mourn? We sigh and we groan. And we face it. Disciples of Jesus are of a different kingdom. A kingdom that addresses sin and repents. A kingdom that mourns sin. Not falsely putting on a facade of joy, but experiencing true joy that comes from the comfort of salvation. The comfort of salvation is what comes out of it. A kingdom of people who daily, until the return of the king, sighs deeply, groans profoundly over our choice of power over love. And instead of running from mourning, we wait until the king replaces our mourning. In Psalm 30, it says this, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. That word helper is also translated comforter. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You see, true mourning results in true joy and praise. I'll close with this. The practice of Jesus that we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about during this section of the Beatitudes, silence and solitude. The practice of Jesus to get away from the crowds and withdraw and to be in a, in a quiet space to be alone with his father. A practice he, over and over throughout his life from which he drew strength and we're not greater than our master for, for, for we need it too. And what would your life be like if just 10 minutes, you got up 10 minutes earlier in the morning to find a quiet place in your home where you could be alone with Jesus. Turn off the noise of the world. And what if in that quiet space you were to ask him, Lord Jesus, help me to mourn over my sin. 
Help me to, to sigh and groan. Help me to feel towards my sin the way that you feel towards my sin. And I know like the, there's some of you who are, who are saying, wait a minute, I'm forgiven. I don't have any sin to mourn. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far my sins have been removed from me. Because of the cross of Jesus, God the Father, he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son. I've been justified. There's nothing for me to mourn. Yeah, okay. At the cross, yes, you've been saved from the punishment of sin. And yes, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, you've been saved from the power of sin. But as my friend pointed out to me this week, we're all swimming in polluted water. We're swimming in the polluted ocean of sin. We're still living in the presence of sin. It's in the world around us, and it's in us. We continue to choose power over love every single day. Yes, there is sin to confront and repent of and to mourn. Once we've done that, what if we asked Jesus to help us mourn for this world's sin? What if we chose to replace judgment with empathy? See, what would happen, it would, it would make us better missionaries. And it would change us profoundly. For us to mourn the world's sin, it would make our hearts pliable and soft. It would make us ready to be meek. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you, for, thank you for not being indifferent towards us. You could have rejected us. You could have wiped the slate clean. Or you could have just ignored us. But instead, you chose to love us and redeem us. That you will not allow us to languish forever living in relationships of power and control that you instead choose to bring an end to that and to call us back to your intent for relationships with you and with one another and with ourselves and what you've made to choose love. I pray that by the power of your spirit you will enable us to do that. Help us this week mourn sin. In Jesus' name.